Val. And let's just pray again. Lord, uh, we thank you for the beauty of your word, uh, the beauty of a scripture like this that is so full of hope and meaning. Uh, Lord, just thrill our hearts today. Open our eyes and our minds to understand and use this very weak messenger, Lord, in some way uh, to, to honor you and to point people to you. We ask that you'd be here and present among us in Jesus' name. Amen. Defining hope. We have uh, already seen this word and this theme in our series on the end times, and so not surprising we find it here in this passage. And this passage provides for us something that's very important, as our title would suggest, uh, a definition of hope. And this is what I hope to cover this morning, uh, these three things. We want to talk about what hope is and define it. Then we want to get specific about what our hope is. And then finally we'll talk about what our hope does. What difference does it make in our lives? But we're going to start with the definition of hope. And I want you to see this. Actually, we're going to skip down to the end of our passage because that's where we find this biblical definition for what hope is starting in verse 24. It says, In this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So in these two verses, we find a few things that can help us understand what hope is. First of all, hope is something that is good or positive. Hope is something that is a blessing. Notice verse 24. In this hope, we were saved. In other words, uh, having come to Christ, having found salvation. And, you know, we know that word and we use that word so often, I think we, we forget its meaning. I don't know if anyone in this room or anyone that's watching has ever uh, been saved by perhaps a lifeguard or a police officer or a fireman, but anyone who's had that experience, anyone who has had their life saved by another human being, you never forget that person. You never forget the significance of every moment of your life. God has given you back the opportunity to live. And this is what we have found in Christ. And yet in so much greater a way, because we're not just talking about a physical death, we're talking about a spiritual, a potential spiritual death. God has rescued us and given us spiritual life that's going to last for all eternity. The, the separation between us and God has been removed. And through Jesus, we've been reconciled. We've been brought back to God. We're part of his family again. And one of the grand benefits of salvation is that we have hope, which means that we have a future. We have something to look forward to, something that we can be confident in. We have a future that is incredible. In fact, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, in his letter, he describes this hope that we have. He calls it a living hope. He says that we are kept for an inheritance that is being kept for us. And he goes on to describe it in terms that, again, we, we might become all too familiar with. But here's the first thing we can understand about hope. Hope is something good. It's a blessing. It's a gift that God has provided for us. Secondly, we see this about hope, and that is that it's something future. Notice verse 24 again. Hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? That doesn't meet our definition, does it? So hope is something that in biblical terms is something that is 
future. We don't have it now. We don't see it now. Peter also talked about this part when he said we, uh, we, we've never seen Jesus, but we, we love Him and we rejoice in Him even though we haven't seen Him. Uh, hope is something that gives us a, a, a complete assurance about what God has done and what He's done for us, but it's something future. We look forward to something that we don't have yet. Uh, many theologians have uh, become accustomed to using a phrase, already, not yet. There are aspects in which our salvation is already fully true. We have already been transferred into the kingdom of God or kingdom of light. We've already become the children of God, and yet the fulfillment of it, the, the full revelation of those things is yet to come. It is future. We don't see it now. We don't have it now. We look forward to it to come. Then verse 25. If we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now I'm going to insinuate something from this phrase, as you see on the screen. Hope is something certain. And this is where we have this challenge with translating uh, the New Testament or the Old Testament, New Testament written in Greek, and we translate it into the English language, and we try to use words that make sense. But the problem with the word hope that is used here in this translation is it's not you we don't we don't read it here in the way that we use it commonly in our common English language when we use the word hope we're saying I hope and then we go on to say something that we would like to happen in the future but we have no certainty about it at all it's like Wayne Hockley cheering for the Toronto Maple Leafs He's got, he's got hope, and I've been giving him a hard time about this, and, and uh, you know, I can see the tears welling up every time. And, but this is the way we use the word hope. We, we, sometimes we think, well, if we really hope in something, or we might bring a sign to watch the Toronto Maple Leafs that says, we believe, as though somehow our, our confidence, our desire for some reality to happen is going to give some kind of positive energy that's going to promote a good outcome. That's not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's not maybe. When Scripture speaks about hope, it's translating a word for us that means a certain future. And in this case, obviously, a certain good future. That's why Paul says we can wait for it patiently because there's no doubt that it's coming and we're not wondering what the future is we know what the future is and we can wait for it patiently because it's absolutely certain and the reason that we have hope in Christ is because God has made a promise to us and God always keeps his promises so when he tells us that those who are in Christ have this blessed hope and have this inheritance which is to come we know that it is absolutely certain so this is our definition of hope. I'm going to call it biblical hope. This is what scripture means when it uses this word hope. It's something good, it's something future, and it is something that is absolutely certain. So we see this definition that Paul provides in these two verses at the end of our passage. What hope is. But more specifically now, what, what is our hope? And I want us to see that in this passage, what our hope is as Christians. What is our hope according to this passage? Well, we, we see Paul begin to describe it right in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings, 
are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This is the great hope of the believer. Now we can go to other places in the New Testament that describe various aspects of our hope and our future in Christ and eternity. There's a number of things that we can hope in, but here's the specific one that Paul is going to reference here. The glory that will be revealed in us. This is mind-blowing. And I fear I cannot adequately describe and excite you with what Paul is talking about here. But let's back up and say, well, what is glory? What, what do we mean by the word glory? The word glory is visible beauty. Generally, we use this word glory even outside of spiritual context. Uh, often it's used to describe God. We describe God as glorious. We call him glorious because of his great beauty. There's places in the Bible that refer to even visible forms of glory. Like in the Old Testament when Solomon inaugurated and blessed that first temple that he built and the smoke of God's glory, his presence filled that place and everyone, of course, was in awe. Or when Peter, James, and John went up on a mountain with Jesus and he began to display in his own body the glory of God. We call it the transfiguration. And those men were blown away. One of the gospel writers says that they, they fell down like they were asleep. Peter began to stutter out some nonsense about, about what this all meant. Their minds were blown to see the glory of God. It's the visible beauty of God. Can you imagine? Uh, Friday night, I was driving back. There was a huge rainstorm down Cambridge. Maybe some of you saw that. And uh, I had to go to a, a wedding rehearsal. Uh, and on the way home, Liam was with me. And the sky, so often after a storm, the sky just does incredible things. And so there were some dark clouds. And there was uh, the sunset as we drove back to the west was absolutely amazing. And of course, those kinds of things that we see in creation, the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. But it's just, those are just little glimpses of who God is. When we see a rainbow and we stand in awe, or if you're from the north like I was and you could stand on a dock and see uh, the stars without any light of the city around you, or in the fall and winter when you could look to the north and see uh, the northern lights and literally feel like I've got to pull this car over because I'm going to crash. I'm looking at this. It's amazing. And all of those things, just tiny little glimpses of what we would see if we could see the glory of God, someday we will. I don't know how. In fact, this is, this is one of the realities of having a glorified, uh, resurrected body, is that God is going to give us a body. He's going to give us eyeballs. He's going to give us a mind. He's going to give us a body that somehow is able uh, to, to survive in the presence of God, in the presence of his glory. Scripture, of course, says to us, you can't see God and live. You can't. It's just like we can't look, you can't even look at the glory of the sun without harming and damaging our eyes. God is going to have to give us new bodies so that we can live in the presence of his glory. There is nothing in this universe that compares in beauty or in value to the glory of God. That is what everything is about. You say, well, why did God create the universe 
in the beginning. We can simply say that he did it for his glory. I like to say it this way, that God, in his kindness, created the universe and people to dwell in it because in his kindness he was willing to share this one thing of value above all other things. That's himself and his glory. He was willing to share that with us. I mean, if you were the king of the universe, if you had all the glory, all the power, all the wealth, would you share? I wouldn't. But God would. And that's the story of history. That's the story of humanity. That's the story of creation. And Adam and Eve got to dwell in some way in the presence of God. They, they saw His glory reflected in a perfect and good creation. And what did they do? They rejected it. They said, there's something we want more than to live under this banner of God's glory and blessing. We'd rather go this way, thanks. And all of us have done the same thing. I mean, ask yourself, have you in your lifetime, you even perhaps this morning, do we value God and His glory above all else? Do we get up? Did we get up this morning because of the glory of God, the desire to know Him so that we can tell others about Him, so that we can spread His glory? Did we get out of bed this morning? Will we get out of bed tomorrow for that purpose? Do we go to work? Do we work a job for the glory of God? And the answer is that it is so easy for us, it's so common for us to live for other glories. Man-made glories. Our own glory. Our own version of what is worthy and valuable and beautiful. We live for those things. We call that in Scripture, idols. False gods. We all have committed the sin of Adam and Eve, which is why sin has passed to all of us and we experience it every day. But here's the wonder of who God is. Number one, He is perfectly beautiful and glorious. There is no darkness in God. He is all light. He is all beauty. And somehow He has made us so that we can know Him. And more than that, this is the grand storyline of redemption that to whatever, I would say, limited degree, Adam and Eve got to experience or know or see the glory of God. It will be nothing compared to what we will experience as the redeemed of God in eternity. Our experience of dwelling in the presence of God, not just with a physical body like Adam and Eve had, but with a physical, spiritual, resurrected body that's able to fully uh, not only experience the glory of God, but somehow display the glory of God. This is the, the wonder of what God has done in redemption. He's, he's made humanity through redemption, through salvation, to become conduits of this glory. Now, we get to do that now, don't we? I mean, you, you get up in the morning and you love your wife and you parent your children well. You show them the character of God. You're putting the glory of God on display. That's, that's why we get out of bed in the morning because as the people of God, the Spirit of God indwells us, 
to help us to display the character of God. And as the character of God is seen in us, the glory of God is emanating out of our lives. I mean, people could come to Christ through our lives because they've seen the beauty of Jesus shining through us. I mean, shouldn't that excite us? Shouldn't that be a prayer? God, in my workplace, in my school, in my neighborhood, would you so fill me and so make me like Jesus that people will see Him and be drawn to Him. Not to me, but to Him. That's our opportunity now to shine the glory of God. But there is a day coming. And of course, we've just said, hope is still future. So the fullness of this is still coming when we will reveal the glory of God will be revealed in us. When we are given bodies like the body of Jesus, when we get our resurrection body, whether we, uh, we die, and uh, of course Scripture speaks of a rapture event where the dead in Christ will rise and be given resurrected bodies, where believers who are still alive will be caught up and given resurrection bodies. We're going to hear at the end of the summer um, from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, teaching through that important uh, passage about what it means to have a resurrected body. But this is our hope, according to Paul in this passage, that someday we are going to shine with the glory of God. The glory of God, notice it doesn't say the glory of God will be revealed to us. That's true, but that's not what it says. It says the glory of God will be revealed in us. Somehow God is going to share himself with us so fully. We're not going to be God. But the glory of God, the same glory that in the book of Isaiah, God said in the context of idolatry, I will not share my glory with another. Somehow, with all of his people who've come to Christ for redemption, somehow he will share that glory and give us the opportunity to shine with that glory for all eternity. Notice what it goes on to say. The creation waits in eager expectation. Notice. For the children of God to be revealed. Paul's going to go on and talk about creation and how creation groans and it's under this curse and it's, it faces this frustration. But creation has this hope, verse 20, that it will be liberated from its bondage to decay, notice, and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We wrongly look at this passage, some of us, I know I have, and focused, fixated on what it says about creation. What it says about creation is very important because what God made in Genesis uh, 1 and 2 is, is good. And part of the gospel story, part of the redemption story is that God just isn't just redeeming people, he's redeeming everything. Everything that he'd made, that sin destroyed and distorted, he's redeeming it all. He is going to redeem Creation, he's going to make all things new, but that's not the point of this passage. And in fact, it's interesting to me that creation's redemption only follows the redemption of humanity. It shouldn't surprise us because humanity was made as the pinnacle of all creation. Humanity was made uh, in God's image. Humanity was made to be the caretakers of God's creation. So it makes sense that creation can only be repaired after humanity has been repaired. So creation is literally waiting for humanity, the caretakers of itself, 
to first be made whole, to be redeemed, to be made glorious, because that will be the signal that the trees and the dirt and the animals and the universe will be brought back into perfection when first the people of God have been perfected. So that's Paul's argument here. Yeah, he's talking about creation and the redemption of creation, but what he's saying is creation waits for the people of God to first be redeemed, to first be brought into this glory that we see in verse 18 and again in verse 21. Then creation will be made whole. What our hope is, our hope is that we're going to share in the glory of God. It's interesting to me that the hope of this passage is not deliverance from suffering, even though, of course, ultimately, when we share in the glory of God, there will be no suffering. He'll wipe every tear from our eyes. There'll be no sickness, no death. There'll be no curse. But when many of us think of end times and the end times teaching of Scripture, what we're looking for is deliverance from suffering, deliverance from tribulation. What I find interesting, and it's really struck me in this series so far, that so many of these passages that talk about the future and our hope for the future talk about those things in the context of present suffering. Our hope for the future as believers is not to escape tribulation and suffering in this world. Our hope is to be with Christ and to experience the fullness of redemption and to share in the glory of Jesus. So let's go on with our third point then and ask this. We've seen what hope is. We've seen what our hope is. Let's ask ourselves this question. What does our hope do? This confidence, this promise we have about future glory, about being glorified in Christ, what does it do? Well, and here's the first thing, as I've just been saying. Verse 18 shows us the context here is of suffering. Paul, of course, knew what it meant to suffer. If you know the story of the book of Acts, the story of the Apostle Paul's life, you know that he suffered immensely. He was in prison. He was beaten. He was whipped. He literally was stoned to death, came back to life, kept going. He was in a shipwreck. He was bitten by a snake. We can go on and on and on. He knew suffering, and yet these words come from him. I know as a preacher, sometimes I feel that tension that when I'm talking about suffering, or talking about hope, surely there's people who wonder whether I really understand suffering the way that they do. And the answer is I might not. I haven't been through the same intensity of suffering that all of you have. I've been through a variety of kinds of suffering in my life. These words come from a man who knew suffering far, far greater than I do. And here's the lesson. Hope produces patience. That's why he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us, or in us, excuse me. He's saying, think of a scale. On this side, put all of the pain of your life, all of the suffering, all of your disappointments, put it over here on the scale. And then over on this side, the weight of being participants in the glory of God and you drop that on the scale and this side drops and this side everything scatters it does not compare Paul could say in Philippians 
In this context, suffering. In another context, in Philippians, he talks about all the things that he's gained in his life and all of his education and all of his wealth and all of his lineage and all of his... all that he might look to to boast. He says it's all rubbish compared to gaining Christ. So we find patience in this. It's mentioned again later in the passage. Verse 25 says, if we hope, we've seen this already, if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This hope gives us the ability to endure the suffering that God allows in our lives. We talked a couple of weeks ago about childbirth, and uh, I got to uh, experience this in observation, ladies, with my wife on four occasions, one time with twins, and I will always, I will, I will never forget the quiet resolve of Diane uh, in her uh, giving birth. That in spite of the obvious intensity of pain, that there was this wonderful expectation of what was to come. The Bible speaks of our hope in suffering in that way. That yes, we're going to have pain, we're going to have sorrow, but there's something coming at the other end of that. That's why it describes the suffering of this life and the suffering of the end times, like childbirth, like birth pangs. Our hope produces patience. It gives us the ability to endure. And then this one, we see in this passage about how creation groans under the weight of this curse that our sin brought upon this world. But then we see that we we groan. Verse 23, not only so we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Again, hard for me not to think of, of childbirth in this, in this point as well. We groan. See, there's different responses we can bring to our suffering. Not hard to Think of what some of these would be. Different responses we can bring to our suffering. We can deny it. A lot of times we do this on Sunday mornings, right? When we shake hands and say, how are you doing? We've had a terrible week. We've got a really difficult uh, challenge in our life. And we say, I'm fine. How are you? Not only do we do that socially, but sometimes we do that internally. We just, we just try to pretend it's not there. We deny it. Sometimes in our suffering, we, we medicate our suffering. Yeah, obviously with substances or perhaps with alcohol or something, but sometimes we, we just try to fill our hearts and fill our lives with something that will take away the pain. Maybe if I spend more, maybe if I have more, maybe if I try to do more, maybe it will numb the pain of this suffering. We try to medicate. Sometimes we get angry. We get angry at God and our pain turns into a fist We've all known people who've turned their back on God because of the pain that he's allowed into their life. What's the right response? Did you know that this is, this is, the, this is, the, this is the biblical response to our pain? It doesn't seem like a very helpful point for a Sunday sermon, but I find this very true and it actually is very helpful to groan under the weight of our suffering the biblical response, the godly response, is to groan. We know that because Jesus groaned. 
There's a couple of places in the Gospels where he is so deeply sad that it tells us that he groaned in his spirit. See, groaning is an acknowledgement that what I'm going through hurts a lot. But it's not anger, it's not bitterness towards God, it's not denial. The groaning acknowledges the pain that I'm going through. But it also acknowledges my longing for the future that is to come when the pain will be taken away and the troubles lifted, the curse gone, the tears wiped away. Groaning is my acknowledgement of the pain now, my expectation of a better future. So we groan. Partly we're groaning because of the pain. Partly we're groaning because we just want to get there. We want to get to the destination. We want to get through this valley to the other side. So we groan. By the way, so much of what we find in the book of Psalms, you ever notice that about the book of Psalms? For many of us, it's a favorite. I I'll always remember uh, chatting with my grandfather, who wasn't a theologian, but a very committed believer and went through a, a great deal of suffering in his life in his marriage and in different ways and I got his Bible after he died, his old King James Bible and the, the pages of the book of Psalms are marked by the by his finger uh, the oil of his fingers why is that? because in the book of Psalms so many of the Psalms are songs of groaning where the writer is saying, God, you see, him. you see me here. You see what's happening. You see my enemies surrounding me. You see the injustice of this moment. You see my pain. But there is a day coming when you will intervene. So many of the Psalms are this. The groanings of a human being who's experiencing deep pain in their human life and yet have absolute certain confidence that a better future is coming. This is what we do when we have hope. We groan. We acknowledge the pain. And finally this. What our hope does, it produces anticipation. Notice we just read that in verse 23. We ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies. Is that true of, of you and me today? Waiting eagerly. This, it brings a smile to my face. It brings a skip in my step to know that sometime soon I am going to be with Jesus. All of the pain of this world is going to be gone. I'm going to be with Christ. I'm going to be re fully redeemed. I'm going to share in the glory of God. We wait eagerly. We anticipate. We look forward with joy and expectation and excitement. It fuels our energy to get out of bed in the morning and live for that kingdom because we're so excited to be there. And we're so excited for other people to find their way there. And so we anticipate. This is what hope does. It gives us patience and perseverance. It causes us to groan in that faithful expectation of what is to come and it causes us to joyfully anticipate looking forward to what God has promised. 
I think communion is a, a beautiful way to really uh, summarize all that we've talked about today. I'm not sure if this was mentioned earlier, but if you don't have uh, emblems at home, um, go ahead and get something if you can, if you have something. For the rest of us, we'll, we'll remember the Lord. In communion, of course, we acknowledge our Savior. We saw in our passage that it's in this hope we were saved. Our salvation is rooted right here in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we take bread and we take juice to remember the suffering of Jesus, which brought about, provided for our salvation and redemption. But notice this verse from 1 Corinthians 11, also written by the Apostle Paul, where he says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, don't you love this phrase? Until he comes. So in this, especially in COVID times, this doesn't seem like much of a feast, does it? But it's meant to represent a feast. It's meant to rep represent the table of the Lord. And he, in salvation, has set a table before us. He's provided the spiritual nourishment we have to survive, to live. But it also points forward to another feast. A feast that is to come. A feast in which we'll sit around a table uh, experiencing what Paul was writing about here when he said that we would know the glory of God. It will be revealed in us. There's a day coming. So in communion, we look backward to acknowledge the wonder of what Christ has done for us. We look forward in expectation of what is to come. And as we do that, what do we remember? We remember the suffering of Jesus. And in this context, as we think of end times and the reality of our own suffering and potentially uh, increased suffering as we get closer to the time of the end, it's Jesus in his suffering who sets the example for us of how to suffer well, how to commit ourselves into the hands of our Father, how to say, not your will, but not my will, but yours be done. It is Jesus that shows us that through suffering, there's hope on the other side for the joy set before him, Hebrews says. He endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of God. Glory comes through suffering. There is no other way. So we remember these things this morning as we first take the bread. We remember the body of Christ. And we give thanks. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for offering your life for us, your body broken and bruised, uh, crushed like the grains of wheat that made this bread. We thank you for suffering for us. Lord, through your suffering, we have hope. You've made us alive. We give you thanks. And we thank you, God, for this juice vividly reminds us of the blood of Jesus poured out. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Without the 
the death of Jesus, there could be no redemption for sinners like us. It's only because he became our substitute. He became our, our lamb, sacrificed for our sin. Only through that offering could we be made clean. And God, somehow through this, one day we will share in the glory of God. How could it be, Lord? We give you thanks for this remembrance. We give you thanks for Christ. Amen.